Greetings and salutations. You're listening to This Ends at Prom, a podcast where I, teen movie apologist BJ Colangelo, show my wife, Harmony Colangelo, a seminal teen girl movie that I missed out on because I grew up as a teen boy. Is today's movie truly emblematic of womanhood? Or of rose-colored nostalgia glasses worth your perspective? Circle yes, no, or maybe to find out if we're crowning a queen? Or if we're killing the teen dream. Welcome to This Ends at Prom. This Ends at Prom is a Pod People production. I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I. Good to want things, prom party. I don't know if that's as profound as the kid who was fucking off during English class and wrote, like, a cow knows not the worth of its own tail until it's missing and he says, ow. But it's pretty (laughs) close. That's one of the best morals of this movie. I agree completely. It's just one of those things where I think on paper the line was written and then it's just like, yeah. That's art. That's art right there. That's the message. And you know what? It's a good message. It's a message that I think more people should be listening to. It's a farm town version of like, don't know what you got (laughs) till it's gone. (laughs) Beautiful. Friends, we are discussing a movie that I know some of our Gen Xers were really excited about uh, when we posted it on the Patreon. We are talking about the Winona Ryder, just absolute classic if you're asking me, Welcome Home, Roxy Carmichael. And this week, we are not alone, friends. We have a guest. We have the author, professor of education, and editor of The Buckeye Flame, Dr. Ken Schneck. This is the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad we could be of service for you to offer this amazingly great moment in your life. I feel like people are like, oh, he has a PhD. What does he study? I study Welcome Home, Roxy Carmichael. This is my life. (laughs) What would like the, what is it, like the the stoles? Like what would the the graduation stoles look like for somebody with a PhD in Roxy Carmichael? Uh, You know, there would be, I think it would be a menagerie. I think that there would be all this different animal clip art all over it. (laughs) And and that's what it is. Just with a blue, because it would be an arc sailing off into the distance. But yeah, that's what it is. Oh, incredible. So we wanted Ken to come on the show because one, Ken is brilliant. I'm just going to say that. Uh, But two, this is a movie that you recommended when we kind of just teased about you coming on the show. And it was not a movie I was expecting anyone on the planet to recommend because this is, I don't want to call it a deep cut, but this doesn't have, you know, the the popular acclaim of something like a John Hughes movie or even like the, the bigger known Winona Ryder, there's an entire t-shirt line at Hot Topic movies. So I was really excited that this was the movie you wanted. So I'm curious, what is it about Welcome Home, Roxy Carmichael that you're like, this is this is it for me? First of all, I love that you downplayed and said that I recommended. I, I think it was a demand. 
Uh, I think it was more of a demand. And so I appreciate that because that makes me look a lot better than what actually happened. And I have to tell listeners that this is unbelievably poignant for me right this second because I am sitting in a hotel room in Montvale, New Jersey, where I grew up, which I am visiting this weekend for my niece's high school graduation from the high school that I graduated from. So last night, I was at the high school uh, that I graduated from that I have not returned to in 27 years. And that sets up <laughs> Welcome Home, Roxy Carmichael like you have no idea. This was my movie, <laughs> right? This was 1990. I was 13, 14 years old. It was bar mitzvah time. I was figuring out who I was, both uh, just identity-wise, religiously, sexual orientation. So I don't know. This movie has always been just core to my soul. I love that. I think that's very beautiful and weirdly poetic that you're having your own little welcome home Roxy Carmichael kind of moment. Um, So Harmony, what was your introduction to this movie or was it the show? Uh, It's definitely the show because I have never heard anybody bring this up in any context outside of Ken going, I want to do this movie. (laughs) (laughs) For me, Welcome Home Roxy Carmichael lives, I think, more so in the visualization of the VHS box cover art at the video store than it does for anything. Oh, yeah. Because when I was a young, you know, little shit kicker trying to figure out my place in the world, um, especially as somebody who is very high femme and was doing baton and pageants, but was, you know, a little more rough around the edges and a bit more punk rock. The cover art that I had in my store was the wonderful one of Winona Ryder wearing the pink dress with all the little, like, like the subtle polka dots that you don't know are there unless you're looking for them and the pair of combat boots with pink laces. And that was just the most striking visual imagery for me. And I honestly think had a lot of impact on my fashion sense as I grew up, Not probably not realizing that's where I got it from. It's just one of those things that kind of existed in the recesses of my brain. Um, And then I watched it by a rental with some friends. I thought it was an absolute delight. I mean, I, Winona forever. Like, (laughs) what else can you say? I love the idea of, like, I'm super feminine girly. Look at my pink formal dress. But also, I'm tough and could kick your ass of the combat boots. And this is, like, what I feel like is a full decade and a half before that became popular in, like, the mid-2000s. Where it's like, I'm wearing my prom dress, but also Chuck's. Uh, yeah, that's the uh, Cinderella story cover with Hilary Duff um, wearing the big prom dress and the little teeny tiny clip-in tiara that, for whatever reason, we all decided we were wearing. And then a pair <laughs> of, of Converse because you had to know, like, you know, she's not like most girls. I will say, I, you know, the cover is a little misleading for people who uh, haven't for seen sure. it. You know, and so, and so that part's a little bit frustrating to me of of just, oh, you're really doing that pretty in pink ending. You're really doing that, like, when she's allowed to become a full human, which is in the last 45 seconds of the movie because she has that classic uh, 80s, early 90s makeover. But I do enjoy the verbiage on the cover of that, uh, Dinky Bassetti. I mean, first of all, can we just talk about the name Dinky (laughs) Bassetti? 
Dinky Bissetti is such an, first off, just incredible name. I love the way that it sounds on the mouth. But Harmony and I are big fans of the name Dinky. Dinky is also the name of the adorable Southern Belle roommate of Amanda Bynes in, in uh, Sydney White. And our taxidermy possum is named Dinky for that reason. <laughs> I had no, I, I love that. I love that. So yeah, <laughs> Dinky Bissetti is about to find out what legends are made of. It's good to want things. That's freaking brilliant. I can't write mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. <laughs> and it's I love poetry. the I love the idea that it is what legends are made of and it's referring very much to the small town legend. Yeah. Like this isn't an urban legend that has traveled across the country. This isn't like a legend that's an epic and we're going to deal with heroes and and wild creatures that don't exist. We're dealing with the small town legend, which I think in a lot of ways is more interesting than any of the bigger legends because it's so specific to such a small group of people to the point where it doesn't matter to really anyone outside of that small group. Like, it doesn't exist. No one knows who that is. You could travel to anywhere in the country and be like, I'm from the same hometown as Roxy Carmichael. And people would be like, I don't know who the fuck that is. Please go away from me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, around the time that we first were watching this movie for the episode, it, there was a trend going around on Twitter about like, are you the most famous person from your high school? And I can't say that I am, but I can't tell you who is. And when you're in like small town America, like anywhere in the Rust Belt, the Midwest, maybe the South, there's this folk hero status to the person who succeeded in your high school. Like maybe they were a senior when you were a freshman and they looked at you one time and that's a big deal. That's the, that's the aura of Roxy Carmichael. Oh yeah. I have to tell you, that's exactly what I was going to say. There's such a universality to this. And it's not a Midwestern thing. Like, I, again, I am sitting here right now in Montvale, New Jersey, and it was always like, who's the famous person from your high school and who really made it? And and we actually have a, it's so interesting. You're going to love this. Before Bill Maher, so Bill Maher did graduate from my high school, um, as did, Ew. I know, as did, as did Dana Bash, who Dana Bash is, is really one of the most prominent CNN anchors. But before them, the most famous person from my high school, and I feel like this name is going to trigger you both right away, and I will be disappointed if it doesn't, but you'll get it after one more sentence. The most famous perf- person from my high school was Carrie Green. <gasps> I know who this is. I don't think Harvey does. <laughs> Come on, Harmony, come through. I, I, I know a lot about very specific things, and frequently BJ will go like, oh my god, this person got married, or this person came out, or oh no, this person died. And I go, which one is that? And then she goes, it's from this thing that you watched on Comedy Central on a Sunday afternoon in 2006. And I went, oh shit, I know exactly who that exactly. is. I love them. That's this. So Carrie Green was the redhead from Goonies. She was the oh, redhead. That's exactly. Andy. Gotcha. So she, yeah, so she she graduated from my high school, and then she was usurped by Sean Weiss, uh, who was the goalie in the Mighty Ducks. Oh, I love Goldberg. We're we're big fans of uh, him in heavyweights. There yes. it is. There it is. So yeah. <laughs> so and so it always just you know you wanted to be that person, and so to have like the famous people from our high school actually be these kind of. Again, John Hughesian, 80s and 90s stars, Roxy Carmichael just hit totally home for me. We were having this discussion about the like famous person from their high school. And depending on what circle you're rolling in, 
I'm one of them, and that's a very weird thing to think about. My school has produced a lot of really impressive athletes. Um, like Billy McKinney was in the NBA. He's now the mayor of my hometown, which is like such a weird poetic thing of like there is a shrine like a painted mural of this man in the high school gym like his jersey and everything and then he went off did sports things and then came back and now he's the mayor like it feels like a family guy sketch um (laughs) but if you're talking about I, i i mean like film circles or i guess art circles I'm one of the the most recognizable ones, and that's really weird. Like, that's a really weird thing to say out loud because you sound like such an asshole, but it's just the reality of the situation. Um, I still get messages from people from my high school that are, like, currently attending that will reach out, and they're like, oh, my gosh, I read about you in this, like, notable alumni thing, and I think you're so cool. And I'm like, thanks. This is awkward. I don't I mean, you know are how to so deal cool. with this. <laughs> It's not your fault that no one else has done anything important. You know, that's a great point. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm not even the most famous person in my grade. <laughs> oh? That stinks. Yeah, no, Justin Spitzer. Shout out to Justin Spitzer, uh, who I think won an Emmy for, he was one of the writers on The Office, uh, oh. and he helped create Superstore. Uh, so yeah, no, Justin Spitzer's done pretty well. I would hope that I'm in like the top six. <laughs> That's what I'm I mean, you definitely it. have some some impressive people coming coming out of your little Jersey high school. We did so all right. We did all right. It's a small little cool. high school. Oh my gosh, it was so bizarre to be sitting there last night. I'm like, oh, <laughs> right over there is where my car got spit on, and it was just nostalgia. It was beautiful. <laughs> so. Coming back to Welcome Home, Roxy Carmichael, Ken, if you had to explain to somebody what this movie is about, what would you tell them? I would tell them, so it's about Dinky Bassetti, a a teenager, 15 or 16 years old, in the early 90s, late 80s. Uh, And and what's also fun about this is that it takes place in Clyde, Ohio, which is a real place. And and certainly growing up, I had never stepped foot in Ohio before, so it's so fun to now be a Clevelander and have this Ohio connection. Um, and I, I actually rewatched the movie last night, which was, again, very enjoyable, and I saw things I had never seen before. Uh, but it was filmed. A lot of it was filmed around the Sandusky area, which is where the filmmaker is from. But, so Dinky Bassetti is this 15, 16-year-old kind of outcast, goth, totally ridiculed by all of her classmates. Um, And the big deal in the town that you see right away is that their most famous Denzian, their their pride and joy of Clyde, Ohio, Roxy Carmichael, who, who made it big in Hollywood, though you're never really sure what it is that she did until way later on. She is returning to Clyde, Ohio to dedicate a building. And so Dinky Bassetti at the start just becomes really obsessed uh, with Roxy Carmichael. And then it takes a really deeper meaning as Dinky, a, uh, an adopted child there in Clyde, Ohio, uh, Dinky becomes convinced that Roxy Carmichael is her mother. That's her biological mother. And so they will have this reunion. And it doesn't quite work out that way. But yeah, so Dinky is, Dinky is, is the outcast in all of us. And she's got an arc. She's got this little mm-hmm. boat by the water where she collects all these stray animals. And yeah, oh my God, I don't know if I told you both this. I freaking love this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I also love this movie. And before we dive in any deeper, it's time for everyone's favorite part of the show. 
Welcome to the morning announcements. As a reminder, you can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com backslash this ends at prom. Over at our Patreon, we offer things like our schedule ahead of time, wonderful playlists curated by Harmony, our Sadie Hawkins dance episodes focusing on teen boy movies, and we are currently going through our TV homecoming series through Pen15. We offer a free bonus episode every month for our subscribers at only $1. If now is not the right time to support financially, we totally understand. All we ask is that if you love the show, you send us to a friend, you give us a five-star review wherever it is you get your podcasts, and you tag us on social media, hashtag thisendsatprom or at thisendsatprom. Alrighty, so with all of our, our housekeeping out of the way, let's dive in deep. And the first person we got to talk about for obvious reasons is Dinky. So Ken, what is it about Dinky that makes her such a great character in your opinion? She has a self-awareness that is just goals for me. She knows everything that's going on. At one point, uh, she scares someone. She just kind of uh, springs up in, in this moron characters, which we'll talk about, uh, car window, and, and, and he says, oh, you scared me. And she's just like, yeah, I, I scare everyone. So she, she has a self-awareness. She has a, a self-confidence to her. She is not pining away the whole movie for social friends. I, I think that family connection and, and really feeling a bond, a maternal bond in particular, uh, I, I think a want to be recognized for what she knows to be her own talents. But I never wanted that to be mistaken for that sh that she needs to be the most popular girl, right? That she needs okay. to be accepted by all of her peers. She rides her bike through that town. She hops on that bike like a freaking champ. She's good. There's this one scene where she's down by her ark and she's holding the newest stray animal that, sh that she brings to this ark full of, you know, there's a... There's a goat and there's a pig and there's all these different dogs and there's this little dog, this new dog with a with a broken leg that she names Wheaton, which is the best. Uh, and she's just holding this dog with a broken leg and she stares out just contentedly because she is content. And so it's just a different take for me than some of these other characters who are like, I, I want to be popular and I and I want the acceptance of all my peers. She is a-okay being the outcast. I freaking love that. Oh, yeah. Like, Dinky has the energy of a person that I relate to, which is I'm at a house party, but I want to go be hanging out in, like, a corner of the kitchen with the dog rather than talking to people. Which is every house party I have ever been to. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Gotta get that drunk Snow White energy is, is, I think, the meme of it, of everyone else is having a good time talking to other people, but you are having a deep conversation with a, a, a handful of Mike's Hard Lemonades with the family dog. Mm -hmm. And I relate to that, and I love that, and I'm a big fan. <laughs> Katie, try to be a cut above. Show some manners. Dave? Hey, Dave, get over here on your own piece of carpet. You know the rules. Now, let's all try and have a nice family meal. I also love that Dinky is very much okay with being the outcast. Like, she is probably the most self-aware person in her high school of oh, understanding yeah. where she fits socially, where she is fitting in terms of the hierarchy in school. And what's so interesting to me is that with the exception of the 
guidance counselor, every adult in Dinky's life cannot understand how she is so comfortable in her skin and is not trying to be part of the status quo like it breaks their brains a little bit and the person that makes me the most I guess passionately irate is the way I can describe it is Dinky's adoptive mother um I fully admit that the last year and a half, I have become extremely radicalized thanks to adoptee TikTok. Um, For those that are unaware, there is an entire kind of culture and community on TikTok of adult adoptees who are trying to get the world to rethink and reassess the privatized adoption industry. And obviously privatized adoption is entirely separate from foster care that has its own issues, but specifically privatized adoption, which has been revealed to be like a very predatory practice where a lot of people that are in need or in crisis are convinced that, you know, no, your children would be better off with these rich white people. And it's really kind of gnarly. And in a lot of instances, people are paying more to adopt an infant than the price tag that it would that it would take for a family in crisis to be able to continue to parent like it is just a corrupt and and, and broken system and something that happens in these in, in these circles the things that are talked about a lot is the idea that children in crisis are not going to cure your infertility trauma children in crisis are not going to cure you know even if you are a queer person or somebody who has has lost a child no one is actually entitled to a baby um adoption is so focused on the wants and needs of a parent Mm -hmm. and not the support required to to actually give a child the life that they deserve. And it is so evident with Dinky's adoptive mother who clearly adopted Dinky because she wanted to make her into her perfect vision. She even says, like, I chose you at some point, Mm -hmm. which is really grotesque language to use when talking about a human being. Um, And it's clear that she's disappointed that Dinky is not the perfect little doll poster child you know, high femme girl that, you know, mom imagined when she quote unquote chose this child. And instead of meeting Dinky where she's at and meeting her needs and understanding who she is as a person, she just wants to get rid of her and push her away. And it is, it is no wonder that Dinky, despite being so sure of herself and being so understanding of who she is as a person, would get caught up in this mindset of Roxy Carmichael must be my my biological mother. Of course, this is where her brain is going to go because adoption is trauma yeah. and it does kind of mess with you psychologically in ways that a lot of times we don't talk about because we want these these magical stories of, oh, we saved this child from their terrible life of poverty and they were on the street and we adopted them and now it's great. But that is not the case like that story doesn't exist as much as we want to believe it does a lot of stories are a lot more like dinkies but we saved them from this life and and let's even do the next sentence and so she owes us right like there's this oh my gosh yes there's this piece of just like she's not letting us be the parents that we want to be there's an unbelievable scene with with her adopted mother in the in the beauty shop right, getting her hair done. And so she's explaining to her hairdresser why they're sending her away. Uh, and and she, right, her adoptive parents are in, throughout the movie are going to send her to this boarding school 
for quote unquote gifted kids. And, and so she's explaining to the hairdresser, right, that this boarding school is just pristine as far as those places can go with an Olympic sized swimming pool. And the hairdresser says to her, oh, says to her, does Dinky swim? And her adopted mother says, well, no. Well, yes. You know, I don't know. Okay, well, you've had Dinky for a really long time. And so mm -hmm. I actually do want you to know whether or not your daughter can swim. So so there's that piece for me. I will say, you know, oversharing, I'm, I'm pretty much at the end of the adoption process. You know, this is a journey that I've been on for, for a really long time. And, and I've had actually three failed adoptions already here in 2022 with uh, placements that have sadly not worked out because something changed at the last minute. And so watching this movie again with that lens of someone who will likely be an adopted parent, adopted parent, you know, hopefully by the end of this year, it's just an unbelievable, horrific display of, wow, look what I did for you. This is how you are to behave. Um, it's it's like all the don'ts of this process. I will also say that that as they're talking to the guy who is selling them on the boarding school, the adopted mother says to him, "Yes, we're we're able to conceive now, so we need to get this settled quickly, uh, because we certainly can't mix. Our, you know, the impl implication is we can't mix our adoptive daughter with our biological daughter, uh, who will who will be our our pride and joy. So, yeah, mm -hmm. a little problematic. A little problematic." Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, Dinky has a whole conversation with her guidance counselor on the beautiful shores of Lake Erie. And what they basically say is that, um, I don't know, when she was like seven years old, Dinky was talking to her adopted mother about what an ideal family vacation would look like. And she suggested like, let's go work on the Alaskan pipeline. And apparently like this woman has a breakdown and can't stop crying for three days and just gives up on being a mother from that point onward. So it's it, we're, we're led to assume that for the last eight years, Dinky's just basically a thorn in this woman's ass and yeah. is on her own. All because, like, mom, mom wanted an accessory. She wanted, um, you know, so, so, someone who fit her lifestyle and her look and was easy. She wanted a small version of her, and that didn't pan out, so she is nothing if not wildly disappointed with her daughter to and the point is, where yeah go ahead i would say and mom is also played by francis fisher yeah. who most people first off she's fantastic she is doing exactly what she needs to do mm -hmm. and her her characterization and her clothing is just fantastic everything about her styling i love it um but for those who don't know who that is by by actor name she is Kate Winslet's mom in Titanic. So yet another role of a mom disappointed that her daughter is not turning out to be the way that she had anticipated. Uh -huh. And has a southern accent in this movie, which is which is uh, <laughs> that part I'm not totally sure about, um, except that I do know, you know, that uh, after Reconstruction, many southern people relocated to Ohio, but I don't think uh, Frances Fisher did. Uh, so yeah, it was that part I wasn't totally clear about. But yeah, even to the point of being disappointed that that Dinky she bought Dinky this sweater and what a great sweater and Dinky dyed this pink sweater black. And mm -hmm. and it wasn't even just that she dyed it black and was disappointed in in Dinky, but she had made her promise to not dye it black, right? That that's an actual conversation that that they had. So yeah, Dinky not living up to the the pink Barbie dreams of Kate Winslet's mom. 
No. <laughs> and Winona Ryder's doing such a good job in this. Like, we didn't spend a lot of time with cultural context for this movie this episode because there's really not a lot of it. The 80s ended, and then we kind of were trying to figure out what the 90s were around the time of this movie. But by this point, Winona is the, like, edgy alternative girl of the decade. Oh, yeah. Where... Like, in back-to-back years, she did Beetlejuice, Heathers, Edward Scissorhands, and this, the same year as Edward Scissorhands. So, she is, like, in these disaffected, like, brooding or, like, cynical films about teendom. And she's playing this character so well. And we wouldn't see this type of characterization of teens uh, more frequently until a few years later when, like, grunge takes over and... All of these kids who grew up during the Reagan administration are now a little more uh, a little more old, a little more into the world, and they have found out that they were sold on lies their whole lives. So in all of those respects, Dinky is like really ahead of her time for a teen character in 1990. Hugely, hugely. And, and I went back and read some reviews and a lot of two-star reviews. What morons. They left off two stars. But the, all of the reviews that, that I read praised Winona Ryder. In a movie that, you know, had some problematic other characters that weren't fully developed. But everything that I read said, this this movie is about Winona Ryder's portrayal. And indeed Mm -hmm. it is. Agreed completely. And she gets so many just great juicy scenes to showcase that. My personal favorite being the poetry scene um, (laughs) in which she's in school. And um, we have uh, kind of cute brother from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is the love interest in this movie. And uh, Dinky, (laughs) like, attacks him by reading erotic poetry. Like, she weaponizes erotic poetry in class. It's fantastic. And she commits so hard into into doing this in public because, again, she's sure of herself. She doesn't need to impress anybody. She doesn't care. Mm -hmm. And it is such a great middle finger to give to somebody of, like, not only am I going to essentially kind of put you on the spot in public, but I'm going to do something that is going to make everyone around me uncomfortable, and I am going to be calm as a cucumber. (laughs) Yeah. I I don't know if we're having technical difficulties and it glitched out, but for some reason it came through on my end that you said kind of cute brother from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And so that, that, again, I'm in New Jersey right now. You're on the other side of the country. So I assume that's just a time zone issue. Yeah. He, Thomas Wilson Brown, playing Gerald Howells, was a really big deal too. And, And for me, it was kind of like, all right, who am I as as someone who doesn't like girls but doesn't have the vocabulary around it at this point because there's no one out in my high school and it's 1990, so even the gay character on the real world hasn't happened yet. Uh, and, and so he kind of straddled this line of these long flowing locks. Uh, and I was able to say, okay, this is kind of like liking a girl, right? Everybody that I'm not talking to about this. He's at very all. pretty. <laughs> He's so pretty. And so to say kind of was was really uh, just invalidating BJ to my entire <laughs> sexual orientation. It really uh, was you saying, who are you? <laughs> for, for full transparency, Ken, um, there's a, there's a style of hair from the 90s that has come back and I hate it. I the don't like cut? the I hate the middle part of this era really badly. 
So uh, I dunked on him for a lot of the movie. I just feel like you're both for this feels like a hate crime. I'm not gonna lie. It's and it's, during which is weird, June. Which is during June. What what pride? You, it's like you both left Ohio and you're like, yeah, screw the gays. I can't deal with the center part. That's that's I'm, I'm how I feel. I'm sorry to be so mean to someone who literally wrote the book on queerness in Ohio. I'm just saying, hashtag I stand with center part. That's where I am. <laughs> now. That's where I am. So yeah, no, Gerald Howells, uh, that I that character. It was you know it didn't make a lot of sense, and and it's so interesting. I, I want to go back for a second because BJ, you were talking about you know how well you both were talking about how all of the other people don't understand Dinky, and it's amazing how the language that they use around Dinky is the same language that Dinky uses to chastise the pig Dave on her ark. Right. So so they're all saying about Dinky, you know, be a cut above, get yourself together. And one of my favorite lines in the movie is when Dave the pig. So so Dinky's got this arc and her father owns a fabric store. And so she gets these little carpet samples. And for every animal on her little arc, uh, her broken arc down by the water under the underpass, uh, Dinky <laughs> puts out these carpet squares and, the, and all the animals are to stay on their carpet squares and eat whatever food that she serves them. And so at one point, Dave the pig goes to someone else's carpet square and she pulls the pig away and says, come on, Dave, don't be such a cliche. Be a cut above. And, and it's the same language that the rest of the town uses to talk about Dinky. And it's like, wow, you really see someone who doesn't fit in as an animal in a way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's also fascinating because we're essentially seeing how the the it takes a village sort of mindset of raising a child has impacted someone like Dinky. Like she may be rejecting what people are saying to her, but that doesn't mean it's not being absorbed by her. It's just mm-hmm. manifesting in ways that instead of taking what they say and putting it on herself, it's being projected onto onto these these little animals. Oh. Um and, and, and it does kind of break your heart a little bit. There's so much of this where I love Dinky as a character. I think she's so fantastic. But my mm-hmm. like heart just hurts for her because she's somebody who is dealing with so much pain and at an age where she doesn't deserve that. She shouldn't be as mature and I guess like a cut above everybody else in terms of, in terms of her sense of self. But she's had to be like it's a survival tactic to just make it through this small Ohio town where I mean, this is this is also not her first Ohio movie because Heather's is set in Ohio Uh where it's very much like, you know, if you're drinking bottled water, you might as well be wearing a dress kind of thing. And that's the time frame that we're dealing with. And not only is she just, you know, in Ohio, she's in small town Ohio. And (laughs) even today. We can, I mean, Harmony, you can speak to this as somebody who did grow up in small town Ohio. But oh, golly. <laughs> even today, there, you, you see just the uh, massive amounts of, of difficulty that people have just living their life, just being who they are. If you fit outside that, that social norm, there's going to be some opposition you're going to be up against, and no one should have to live that way. It's, it's atrocious. <laughs> she can't help the way she feels. Neither can I. I mean... There isn't anything wrong with that. It's not like I have some romantic notion about how I'm suffering because my parents, people for that matter, don't understand me. I mean, so what? 
Ge geographically speaking, this might be the closest we ever get to where I grew up. Because this is like a 45-minute drive from my hometown. <laughs> so it's it's just northern Ohio doing northern Ohio things. And the issue that you have is that Dinky is like an early version of what we'll see as like latchkey kids in the 90s. And she's had to be self-reliant for a long time. But she it really is her against the world because no one wants to be associated with her because mom thinks she's weird or the kids think she's smelly. And like she is this pariah where the main issue, um, and this was something I had a lot growing up, is that people are extremely self-centered in how relating to this person or associating with this person will look on them. Mom thinks like, oh, well, all of the people see you and all the weird shit you do. So that reflects on me and I care about my reputation. Um, we see, you know, her her wannabe suitor getting made fun of for thinking she has a good personality. Like, there is this toxicity that exists with being an outcast in an extremely small pond like this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and she doesn't have to become Carrie, right? Like, it doesn't have right. to end with her at the prom and, and, and just blowing things up. She's good. She's good. She wants something more. And, and mm -hmm. she excels in school. It, at one point, it is revealed that she wins the algebra prize that Roxy Carmichael herself won in, in seventh or eighth grade. She's clearly very talented. And she's just got this self-possession to her. I have to say, one of my other favorite scenes, by the way, um, I will say one of my favorite scenes about at least 16 scenes in this movie. Uh, but one of my favorite <laughs> scenes is right after she recites this poetry and weaponizes poetry. What an amazing phrase. And, and that's exactly what she does. And so she is sent to the guidance counselor, who very interesting character there, which we'll talk mm -hmm. about. Uh, so mm -hmm. she's sent and she meets the guidance counselor for the first time. And the lines that she has back to this guidance counselor are just incredible of just peppering her with questions like dinky peppering the guidance counselor like why would you move here and 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 when dinky is done with that conversation which doesn't last very long just says you know this thanks for this talk it really helped the guidance counselor was just getting started and dinky gets up and leaves and i'm like yep that's yeah. amazing she has the power she has the power <laughs> i loved it i loved it and I'm really glad that you brought up the guidance counselor because as much as this is definitely Dinky's movie, the title is Welcome Home, Roxy Carmichael. And it is definitely also about the way that this one person who, spoiler alert, we don't really see. Like we mm -hmm. see kind of random body parts uh, as if there are they like as if she's the teacher and the peanuts um <laughs> in there, terms there's of who she is there's a vision of her yes we don't even know if that's actually her and what she looks like or it's just everyone's idea of what she looks like yeah. and this is just the collective dream of this town yeah i think it's fantastic um but you know that's kind of the beauty of legends as we all kind of have our own idea but everybody in this town has been dramatically affected by Roxy Carmichael, but none more so than those who had kind of the the personal relationships. Yeah. So the first one I want to talk about is Jeff Daniels. <laughs> Just, uh. 
Oh, Denton. Oh. First off, what a name. <laughs> Denton. That's daddy's truck. That's daddy's truck. It's really one of my favorite lines in all of cinema. Of, oh. of Denton just parked out. So, so, right. So, Denton had a baby with Roxy Carmichael, and they were childhood sweethearts, and Roxy just gets up and leaves. Uh, uh-huh. and, and she's just, see you when I'm famous, in the very first scene of the movie, to Denton. And, and now she's returning. Roxy Carmichael is supposed to be returning to the town. And Denton is literally, and emotionally, but also literally parked outside her childhood home, just staring off. He now uh-huh. has a wife and two small children. And it's not working out well for his wife, who was also in high school at the same time. Uh, and, and so at one point she catches him staring at the house and that's when her little son, their son, yells, that's daddy's truck, that's daddy's truck. Uh, and, and I use that line in any and all situations, people. <laughs> if you're ever looking for small talk, you can just yell that out. It works no matter what situation you are in. Uh, but yeah, so poor Jeff Daniels, who is is oversharing with this Dickie Bassetti, who he doesn't even know. Uh, mm-hmm. But he is he's he's a pretty uh, stuck in his glory years kind of guy. Oh yeah, like that that first true love heartbreak hits people a lot harder in a lot of ways. And the way that I've always assessed his character is twofold. So the first one being, he is so trapped in that like mindset that you have of you know first love of your life you marry your high school sweetheart like because he had that he was on track to do all of those things and then Roxy made a decision for herself and peaced out and it's one of those like well I didn't know what to do I don't know what to do now I never thought I would get to this point Mm -hmm. he had his life planned out at like 15 and then never adapted (laughs) like just did not adapt to, to the change um but then the other thing is he is such an overshare with Dinky, and the only way that I can see that is that no one has wanted to talk to Denton about Roxy Carmichael for a very long time. Mm-hmm. He's had no one to talk to about what a wonderful person she was and how she was the light of his life and all of these you know lovely romantic things. And now there's somebody who is interested. At no point does he ever stop to think, hey, maybe I should interrogate why this child is asking me about my ex-girlfriend so much. But he can't. He's just so excited to get to talk about her that none of it matters. And he's just going to keep on rolling. All the while, his poor wife has to watch this happen. And you can tell that she's always had this in the back of her mind. Like, she has accepted and understood that she is a second place prize and has always been. And it's only when the threat of the return of Roxy Carmichael happens that it all just becomes on front street. It can't exist in the back of the mind anymore. It's at the front of it. And she spends so much time trying to ignore that it's not that it's happening and it's just like nope we're putting our blinders on we're not paying attention to this and it's when the kid says look it's daddy's truck and it kind of breaks that wall she's built up of like no you have to see this you have to address it your child is noticing (laughs) then it's like all right nope we're done i can't i can't do this i can't live like this and poor denton ends up uh with no one because barbie rightfully takes the kids and is like figure your shit out you weirdo and get over your high school girlfriend exactly yeah Yeah. and like jeff daniels it's it's so i will never get over the fact that i knew this man for like the first 15 to 18 years of my life as just the guy from dumb and dumber 
And that is the outlier of his career because he is a phenomenal dramatic actor. And he's such a good version of the American male, both in this and like Pleasantville. So he's just, he's tearing it up. But I can't help but think that obviously he, this is 1990. Obviously he's repressing a lot of feelings. Obviously he's not going to therapy. He's a, he's a man in small town Ohio in the year 1990. But I think all of this is pouring out because he is trying to lie to himself. He wants he wants to believe that he's happy with his wife. He wants to believe he's happy with his two kids, even though it's like he's clearly settling for, you know, his second place prize. But because he's been trying to convince himself this whole time, you know, the last 15, 16 years or whatever, that this is what he wants, I think that he did just, like, push it down until it was unavoidable and literally the whole town is a buzz, but no one wants to talk to him and he doesn't really want to acknowledge it. It's this, this weird duality that this character is existing in and that Jeff Daniels is doing a phenomenal job with. And like, I, I he's obviously very aloof when thinking that Dinky could be his kid because he, he knows the reality of what happens to that kid. That kid passed away because they were born like three months too early, but it never even crosses his mind because again, this is about people kind of being self-centered. This is this movie is just a wonderful character study in how one person or like one folk hero can affect everyone's lives yeah. in how it makes them think about where they are and who they are, and it's fascinating. Oh gosh, I love this movie. <laughs> Sorry, Dinky. Don't be. No, I am. I didn't know. I, di- I didn't know she was that real for you. She's no more real for me than she is for you. So another person that I think we absolutely need to unpack in terms of the relationship with Roxy Carmichael. I'm so excited. Is Roxy's former best friend. Yes. Evelyn, who is played by um, Marty Maraschino from Greece. The whole show knows how I feel about Grease. Um, but this character is so juicy to me because what we have here is we have the best friend. We have the best friend from your small town, and she is the needy Lesnicky to Roxy Carmichael's Jennifer Check in Jennifer's Body. Like, that uh-huh. is who these characters are. One of them is is the big shot that the entire town loves. The other one is the one who stayed back behind. But what is fascinating is we know that she clearly wants to impress Roxy because, oh, that's your best friend. You always want to look good when you're running into people from your past. It's the Romeo and Michelle thing. Like, we understand that. Mm-hmm. But there's an additional layer to this because Evelyn's new best friend her second place is is desperately trying to fill the void left behind with Roxy Carmichael. And there is a blink and you'll miss it scene. I mean, for gay people, we clock it immediately. For straight people, it's like, they're just friends. It's like the people who were like, Margot Robbie and Kate McKinnon and Bombshell woke up in a bed together. What a cute sleepover. And it's like, they were <laughs> scissoring. Like, come on. Um, there's a moment where Evelyn and, and her friend uh, are, are making breakfast in the morning and they are discussing. There is an unmade bed in the background, and it's very much the the morning after conversation to which Evelyn's friend says, but I'm not Roxy Carmichael. And she's like, no, you're not Roxy Carmichael. And you're like, oh, 
Roxy is not straight. Right. Like uh-huh. we don't have a full, you know, obviously this character never tells us how she identifies, but we can make the assumption that either somewhere in, in the bi pan spectrum or, you know, maybe she just is queer and that's also, you know, why her relationship with Jeff Daniels doesn't work out is that was the boyfriend that she was supposed to have and she never actually wanted it. We don't know. There's a lot of interpretation here um, that can be made, but that element is just beyond fascinating to me, especially for a movie in 1990. Yeah. So I did some researching for this. There's so Love many fascinating so many fascinating parts of this. So so Dinah Manoff, uh, who plays Roxy's a former best friend, Evelyn. I was obsessed with Dinah Manoff at the time, not even because of Greece. Uh, and by the way, I don't know your feelings on Greece, and I'm scared, so I'm going to move on. Uh, but <laughs> Dinah Manoff was on Empty Nest, which was an Empty Nest being a spinoff of the Golden Girls. And mm-hmm. I was obsessed with Empty Nest. And, and not only just was on Empty Nest, but there was a musical in the 80s called Leader of the Pack, which was this Broadway musical that I grew up listening to. I grew up, again, where I'm sitting right now, right outside New York City. And so my folks (laughs) took us to Broadway shows all the time. And Dinah Manoff was the lead in this horrible, horrible musical that my family listened to (laughs) daily. So Dinah Manoff was a really big deal. And there's actually a line about her in the very irreverent for musical theater fans, we all know the the show. It's called Title of Show. And I love Title uh, of Show so much. <laughs> and there's there's such a great line about Dinah Manoff in the show. So anyway, so you got Dinah Manoff. So she's in this. And then here's some trivia for you. So her her new friend, her new friend Libby, is is played by this actress Sachi Parker. S A C H I. I don't know how you say her first name. Sachi Parker. Do you know who Sachi Parker is? Okay, so I looked this up (laughs) because it was also one of those things where it's like, when you look at an actor and you're like, their face, I don't know who they are, but their face. We had this uh, recently, we we watched Tomboy, um, and uh, Tomboy has... uh, Oh, one of the one of the the lesser Douglas brothers. Like that sounds horrible. Um, I think it's Kevin. Is there a Kevin Douglas? I don't know. <laughs> I think so. But I go, um, BJ, whose face is that? And you go, that looks like a Douglas. And it's like it is a Douglas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you know, there's that. But no, Sachi Parker is Shirley MacLaine's daughter. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And then I had no idea that in the original cut of the movie, there is indeed a scissoring type scene between these two characters that was cut for the theatrical release. So yes, of course, it's not just implied. In the actual movie, these two characters were written to be having some sort of lesbianic relationship. Uh, and and so to, to see that, right, and I will be very honest, like that is not something that I caught when I watched it in 1990. Uh, and, and so to, to have this relationship there and, and you know, one of the characters in the film that is, is one of the most important characters in the film for me would be the character of Melissa Etheridge's music. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It really is its own character. It is wall-to-wall Melissa Etheridge. And it's, that it's one Melissa songs. Etheridge song that plays, uh, what, six times? Something oh, like yeah. that? Yeah. It's two songs, right? Like, so, and, and, and they're not even included 
in the official soundtrack of the movie because which is just unbelievable to me because these two songs which one of them is available uh, one of them is available on her Yes I Am soundtrack I actually know that it is track 5 because I listened to it constantly <laughs> um, and then the other one was never made available I had to get it I swear to you off of LimeWire I don't mm-hmm. remember what year I downloaded downloaded it off of LimeWire, uh, but that's how it is in my iTunes. That's where I got it from. And so <laughs> to have you know these two Melissa Etheridge songs take such prominence in the movie, which adds this whole other queer subtext to the movie, is just is just brilliant. And this is right. This is before. No, we're, we're talking 1990. So this is before Melissa Etheridge came out. Uh, way before this is also Melissa before Etheridge. she blew up because yeah. that that Yes I Am album that's that's the one Melissa Etheridge album that if you know Melissa Etheridge at all it's that album that one has come to my window and am I the only one on it as well so like that was her like outside of her bubble breakthrough album so yeah <laughs> these two songs so I so the the one uh, has got I mean it is the Dinky Bassetti theme song of just if you don't the best refrain ever. If you don't like what you see, don't look at me, right? Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. is Dinky Bassetti, right? That's that's not the character that we have in 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 the Breakfast Club or Pretty in Pink, right? This is cool. I get it. You you're scared of me. You don't like what you see. Also, don't look at me then. So mm-hmm. that was such an anthem. And then uh, the the song "I Will Never Be the Same," which that's why I originally got the Yes I Am album. It was before Come to My Window. Uh, the I Will Never Be the Same. I'm telling you, it was track five. I <laughs> wore that out. So it, it plays an important part in the movie. Uh, do we do we give that away now of, of what? I mean, yeah. Oh. We, we spoil movies, everything we okay, talk good. about, because it's, it's yeah. part of it. So we later find out in the movie, right, the big question this whole time is, why is Roxy Carmichael famous? Like, what did she actually do? I was reading one synopsis of the film that said she was a, a, a film star. Not really. <laughs> Roxy Carmichael became famous because someone wrote a song about her. Mm-hmm. That's, what, that's why she became famous. Someone wrote an unbelievably hit song called In Roxy's Eyes, uh, which when, when the Melissa Etheridge album came out, when Yes, I Am came out, track five wasn't called In Roxy's Eyes. It was called I Will Never Be the Same. And, and so we find out, wait a second, and Dinky finds that out too, of like, because Dinky's not even sure, why is, why is she famous? You couldn't Google her in 1990. And so uh-huh. Dinky's like, wait, what? That's why she's famous? Because <laughs> someone uh-huh. wrote a song about her? And everyone's like, yeah, Dinky, it was a really big song. <laughs> that song was my anthem. I am. T- it probably still is. This was like a little bit before "Love Will Come to You" by the Indigo Girls entered my life. Uh, but this song was my absolute anthem. I, if you're in conversation with me and somehow the song comes on, I will ask you to politely stop whatever sob story you are sharing with me because I <laughs> have a song to listen to. So, yeah. So to have these two Melissa Etheridge songs in this movie is is just and and rewatch it with that queer subtext is just incredible. Oh yeah, uh, like there's a few aspects to this that I absolutely love. 
Um, first of all, it gives off vibes of uh, Come On Back to the Five and Dime, Jim- Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, which is a big favorite of mine in which Jimmy Dean passed through their town one time because they filmed a giant nearby. So there's this monument to him and like the trite little things that he did while he was there. That's what Roxy's life is, where her childhood home is literally a museum that has like preserved candy that she left behind when she fled town. And there's a... um. There's a Ben Folds and Nick Hornsby song I really love called Belinda. And the basic concept of that is that out there, there are a million like power ballads and love songs written about women that you're not with anymore. And in the case of Belinda, this guy is a one hit wonder who left the character of Belinda for an airline stewardess with big tits and gave him free champagne. And now he has to sing his one hit wonder and is cursed by it for the rest of his life because no one cares otherwise. Like there's so much legend that goes to the person, like the the Tawny Katane type people that could be Roxy Carmichael, and how that is a big deal, even if it feels extremely small. It's it's so fascinating and interesting to be like the it girl that you were memorialized forever in this song. Yeah, and and the song, and and I encourage everyone to go look up the lyrics to the song. Um, I do not need to look up the lyrics because they <laughs> are burned upon my soul. It, it, it really is Denton's song. That's, that's the irony. Uh, if you read through the lyrics, it's, it's really everything that, that Denton's character experiences where he's trying to hold on to this person who affected him so deeply. You know, she was young, she was wild. Those are lines in the song. Um, but, but rereading the lyrics, again, burned on my soul, there's this piece, there's this one verse that says um, secrets of your life I never wanted for myself but you guarded them like a lie placed upon the high shelf and uh, that to me is like you mean the part where she was sleeping with Dinah Manoff yeah yes Denton <laughs> that is what we are talking about so those those songs are such a huge huge part of the movie I, I don't know why they are not on the the official Welcome Home Roxy Carmichael soundtrack uh, but th- th- that that is as much a character in the movie as anybody else. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's licensing. I, I want to believe that throughout her entire life, like what, even when they were like 15-year-old lovers, she had breakfast made for Roxy Carmichael that includes champagne and Cornish Gainhams at their nice little dinette by the window because that's just lesbian excellence. <laughs> it's what I, it's the lesbian excellence I strive for, so yes. I agree. This is the type of lesbian excellence that we see in 1970s lesbian vampire movies, where it is just excess and beautiful robes. And just that is whining and that dining. That is my dream. <laughs> um, but something that we have that happens that I think is really fascinating too, that we see with both Denton and with Evelyn, is also this like maintaining of appearances sort of thing. Because we have Evelyn going back and forth about like, oh, should I change my hair? What would Roxy have wanted? What would Roxy have done? Or, you know, Denton immediately having to run out and get a new suit jacket because the one he has is not good enough for her. And then there's that random, like, fake-out blowjob joke. Uh, (laughs) That that can make the final cut of the movie, but the lesbians doing lesbian things that can't. Okay, bummer. Right. So we have these people that are, you know, kind of thrown off of their normal off of their normal routine because she's coming in town. Now they want to look really good. Again, it's the, it's the Romeo and Michelle thing. I understand this. Um, but I just find that really, really fascinating. But one of the other queer elements of this movie that gets a little bit more 
particular and difficult to talk about mm. is the energy between Layla Robbins's mm. uh, Miss Elizabeth Zacks, who is a teacher, who is who is an adult, and this fifteen-year-old dinky. Mm-hmm. And I am of two simultaneous truth mindsets at the same time. So, for one. This does add a level of queerness to Dinky's character and and needing this relationship with somebody to kind of affirm her, um, to tell her that she's good enough, to tell her that she's wonderful. Like, these are a lot of things that so many of us crave. And there's a reason that there are plenty of memes and jokes that will say things like, did you have an inappropriate friendship with your English teacher or theater teacher, or are you straight? And it's not to say that there's like a sexual thing going on there. It's more so a lot of times when kids are misunderstood and if they're artsy or if they're they're very intellectual or if they're queer, there tends to be this weird kindred spirit relationship that a lot of us develop with our guidance counselors are yeah. our, our English teachers any of our artsy teachers because there there's just a level of understanding psychologically that you're not getting from your peers and because it's a little bit more emotional than say math or science you tend to gravitate towards those teachers and I think that's what we have here like this to me feels like the next progression of the idealized student teacher relationship that a lot of people have with like Matilda and Miss Honey where like it's sort of parental it's sort of best friend it's mildly relate like romantic like there's a lot of feelings going on here and there are moments in this movie that as a former educator myself I can go yeah that's inappropriate should not have happened um no you should not take a 15 year old student and drive to Cleveland to go to Higby's that's breaking a lot of laws like, oh yeah you you play a hooky both from your job and from right? her being at school yeah, yeah don't don't do that that's inappropriate but the conversations that the two of them have like they are so important and like Ms. Zax is kind of the only person who is recognizing what Dinky needs. Even the school is like, you know, the other students are struggling because Dinky is such a distraction. And Ms. Zax is like, that's a whole lot of their problem. She's an excellent student. That No, she doesn't have to change. And she's able to be that person that can offer like that maternal love she's not getting from her adoptive mother, can allow her that companionship and friendship that she's not getting from her classmates, and in a weird way gives her romantic affirmation that she's not getting from any of the, any of the, the suitors at school. So it becomes messy. It becomes uh-huh. messy. Yeah, this... Oh gosh, I it's it's quite the relationship, and and I'm going to get political in a second. But and and again, sitting here right where I'm sitting right this second, maybe a mile and a half from my high school, right where I experienced so much bullying and 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 so much torment that 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 certainly throughout my high school experience, you know, had the whole suicidal ideations, even as I am editor of the yearbook and captain of the tennis team, right? And, and, and having this brave face. And I thank God all the time that I had Mrs. DeCaro and, and Mrs. Kenny, and neither one of them were my teachers, right? They mm-hmm. were both support staff. They, I think they also were teachers, but they weren't, you know, they were never teachers that I had. Um, and, and I don't know what I would have done without them. I still never came out to them. 
right? I stopped just short of that. I was mercilessly bullied for being gay in my high school, even though I, I was never out. I, ne- I never mm-hmm. expressed any, any type of same-sex attraction. But here in football country, that I was a tennis player who only wore J. Crew and sat with the girls at lunch. Well, he's gay and we're going to bully him for that, which I always, you know, again, sitting here right now, it's like, well, crap, could I at least have gotten the perks of having sex or going to prom with another guy uh, if I was going to get bullied for it, you know, anyway. Mm -hmm. So now fast forward to 2022 and to know that we have these teachers, these support staff who are playing this critical role for queer youth and to have states like Ohio stand Mm -hmm. up and say, by the way, we're going to pass legislation that when it passes, not if, but when it passes, HB 454, when it passes, yes, it will uh, bar trans youth specifically from accessing gender-affirming care, but the piece that nobody is talking about that to me is just as dastardly is that it will force all teachers and school staff to out LGBTQ students Mm -hmm. to their parents, Mm -hmm. and that's happening in legislation across the country. And so for me, that would have shut me down immediately. It would have Mm -hmm. shut me down immediately. I remember, and I have actually since proven that this happened. I'm like, did I make this up? But I have proven it. Uh, In 1990, I think it was 1993, and I can look it up because there's a New York Times article about it. The comedian Suzanne Westenhofer, do we know Suzanne Westenhofer? Not intimately, but I have seen okay. some of the work. <laughs> so, yeah, Suzanne Westenhofer was a big, what we used to call, brick wall comics. These were Rosie O'Donnell and Ellen DeGeneres. They all started on VH1 as brick wall comics, like comics mm-hmm. who, who, it was a microphone in front of a brick wall. That's what they mm-hmm. were called. And Suzanne Westenhofer was out before everybody else. And apparently, Suzanne Westenhofer knew one of our gym teachers, not in that way, though that would be an amazing cliche, uh, Suzanne Westenhofer, one of the first out lesbian comics and the gym teacher brought Suzanne Westenhofer to my high school. And Suzanne Westenhofer spoke to our health classes about being gay. And I, yet to opt into it, I removed myself from Suzanne Westenhofer speaking to my high school class because I was so petrified at being anywhere near the association. And Mm -hmm. even further validating, if you Google Suzanne Westenhofer and Pascack Hills High School, a New York Times article comes up about how she made this visit to the high school and how this one guy, she says, you know, what if you go to college and you find out that your, your brother or your college roommate is gay? Or what if you find out that your brother is gay? And the quote is, I would kill him from John Contaratus. Well, that's, that tracks. John Contaratus was my high school bully in the same grade mm-hmm. as me. So it's very rare that you have your bullying validated by an article in the New York Times about a lesbian comic <laughs> who came to your, yeah. you know, like it's, it's a ridiculous story. So, so I, that, and, that, and that gym teacher, that health teacher, Mrs. DeCaro, was really one of my go-to people of that hiding out place that I could go to. So I so appreciate, you know, the role that Layla Robbins' character plays in this movie. Um, I, I think we can say without hesitation that that if it, this never would have flown if it had been a male guidance counselor, right? Like they oh, never would have done heavens that. Heavens no. And so 
I, I, I think that, that with our queer lens, we're seeing the problematic parts that the studio was like, yeah, we could probably get away with this, including when she does whisk her away to, you know, Dinky goes to the guidance counselor and says, hey, can you just take me on an errand today? Sure, let's go drive 45 minutes to Cleveland. And they're trying on dresses. Dinky needs a dress for Roxy, the Roxy ball, uh, the Roxy Carmichael ball. Uh, and at one point they're in the dressing room. And, mm -hmm. they, they, you know, Dinky is hesitating and getting changed in front of her. The guidance counselor has no such hesitation, which, okay. Uh, and, and so Dinky gestures at the guidance counselor's breasts and says, they're really nice, you know. And the guidance counselor's like, oh, what are you talking about? Um, and she's like, oh, well, thank you. Uh, and, you know, yours are beautiful, too. And there you go. Okay, mm -hmm. so we're with our guidance counselor in the dressing room and Higby's talking about each other's breasts. This is fine. Yeah, but like, here's the thing, like more specifically, Dinky asks like, do you think mine will ever yeah. be as nice as yours? And she responds oh. by saying, I think they're great just the way they are. Yes. And this this doesn't feel to me like a queer scene. Like I could see how someone could make that read if they wanted to. Right. Um, mm -hmm. But that that almost feels like maliciously assuming the worst about what's going on here. When absolutely this feels like we covered a movie um, a, a little while back from the eighties called Pretty Smart, in which one of the teachers is just sunbathing like topless with the students because she also used to be a student at that school. So it's just really casual. It's like it had big sister energy just hanging out. That's what this feels more like to me. And knowing what we know about Dinky and what we know about her adopted mother, this is probably one of the only times she's ever had anybody say anything nice about how she looks. Oh, yeah. Because the kids in her school don't do it. They throw food at her and say she's smelly and ugly. Like, this is such an important thing. Like, this is a great example of obviously, like, crossing a line and this shouldn't happen and it would never happen today. But this is a great example of having one adult figure in a child's life can literally change their entire life absolutely it's, it's so important and i i think back to like my high school and i had to speak for what was essentially my high school's gsa and like who's more of an outcast than queer kids in ohio like that's that's just unfortunately the hand you're dealt and if we want to go with the queer read of this these kids t were like desperately clinging to me for hope that they needed to be like, I can get out and I can be out and I can do things. Um, please tell me, uh, what's it like being a person who exists? What's it like to be in love? I just need any kind of hope. And this is, this is hope for her. Yes. And I also feel very viscerally about this scene as somebody who was an openly out educator in Ohio and how differently my views on the world have been shaped and obviously how passionately I feel about the legislation that's happening in Ohio um, because I, I taught at two different schools. One of the schools had a openly gay principal and that's the school I'll talk about second. The first school um, no longer exists. It was the building was condemned during the pandemic when everything shut down and is it's going to be torn down um, because the building was so old that it also wasn't ADA compliant. Um, my classroom was on the third floor. So if a kid broke their ankle, they just didn't get to come to theater class um, because they couldn't get up to my classroom. It was awful. Um, but what was interesting is that I would have kids who 
because they knew that I was that I was out would drop me little hints now and then um and a couple of them did just fully come out to me but it was very much under the guise of like please don't tell anybody my parents will kill me and the thing is I think people I think that they assume that children are being dramatic when they say something like that but if you are somebody who has ever interacted with a queer child if they tell you please don't tell anyone my dad will kill me they're probably being serious like that that's Mm -hmm. that's real and that is i guess in a way to also validate and affirm the bullying you received ken like i'm pretty that guy's probably serious i think he would probably kill his brother and that's atrocious um and then the other school that i taught at that had the openly gay principal because cleveland schools are a school of choice you can go places within the city even if it's not in your neighborhood um a lot of queer kids went to that school specifically because they knew the principal's gay so people are not going to mess with my kid and they're not going to make them feel unsafe and on my first day of teaching um i always bought like shoes from the converse pride collection so if you're not paying attention to them you're like oh those are converse and then you realize the bottom soles are rainbow or in the side of its rainbow my first day i walk into that school i have a kid immediately run up to me and say hi my name is so and so i use they them pronouns your attendance sheet is going to say my name is this we don't talk about her she doesn't exist anymore and i was like okay cool so got it i'll i'll track that down for you perfect and then i went to that class later that day and when i went and did the attendance i could feel the entire classroom brace themselves they were waiting for me to say the incorrect name or the incorrect pronouns for this particular student Mm -hmm. not knowing that the student had already talked to me so then I, I used their chosen name and the whole room kind of like exhaled at the same time because you could tell this is a class of kids that love this student, that affirm this student, and they know if there's a new teacher or if there's a sub or if there's whatever that this student's going to have to go through that and it's going to suck really bad for them and we don't want that to happen. And watching the look of relief on all of their faces the second that you know I didn't dead name a student was one of the most validating experiences of my life. And I think about that moment all the time. And every single time new legislation comes out or new whatever, or people accuse adults of being, queer adults of being groomers of children or any of this other just whack-ass bullshit, I think about those kids not getting that moment of relief and it fucking kills me. (laughs) So when I watch this movie and I see this teacher affirming a student and yes, the circumstances are not ideal, but it was 1990. Let's just call it for what it is. But thinking about Dinky not getting to have that moment of just somebody telling her that she is good enough as she is, that she is worthy of love, that she is beautiful, that she is fine the way she is. Not having that moment fucking kills me for her because she deserves that. She deserves all of that goodness. And she has spent so much of her life being denied it. And for people to spin that scene as something malicious or gross, it's just like, ah, that's the only thing I have is just, ah. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I had to just pull up this New York Times article because now I'm just fully in that space uh, a mile and a half away from my high school. And, and this is how nutty this is. And you have to keep in mind, right? Like this is 19, October 15th, 1993. And so we're in that dinky Bassetti time, right? We are right in that time period. And so this is, it, get this, you ready? 
A roommate, Ms. Westenhofer recalled, shunned her for years after she declared her lesbianism. Quote, it was the worst experience of my life, she said amid welling tears. It could happen to you. You could have a gay brother. What would you do? Question mark. Uh, end quote. Mr. Contaratus, that was my high school bully, said, quote, shoot him. Oh, that's even worse. Like, I don't know why shoot him is worse than kill him, but right. shoot him is worse. Yeah. It's because it's specific, which means yeah. he's thought about how. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, yep, that would be my high school bully. And so, yeah, I, uh, I never had that moment, right? I never had that moment of fulfillment. And, and you know, if, if we get to, and let me tell you something, sitting at that high school graduation last night and knowing that there are out queer kids in the high school right now and, and celebrating them, and but also being that one who's like, gosh, where's my Freaky Friday moment where I get to go back and have an, I would have loved to have had an out experience. If I'm going to deal with all the bullying, it would have been great to have some fulfillment as well, which I just did not have until I was 18 years old and moved into New York City where, and I don't even know if I ever told you both this, there actually are a ton of LGBTQ people in New York City. Huh. Who would have guessed? Huh. Who yeah. would have thought? Yeah. Huh. Hmm. Huh. There you go. <laughs> no, but like, I, this actually dredged up a specific memory of mine, and it's a, it's a good one. Is that um, I don't know if you can do this anymore, but like, did you all ever visit like your high school like the year after graduating and just get a visitor pass and just bug your teachers that you used to have like midday? Oh, I've done that, and I've also uh, after I moved away, if I was back in town for whatever reason, I would be specifically asked to come back and talk to the students about you know life after the high school sort of thing because. A lot of them needed that motivation to know that there was more out there. Yeah, it's it, that's the same thing I did. But the year after I graduated, okay, so I came out as trans in late 2009. So like 2010, like the school year starts and I decide like, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to do that thing. I'm going to do that thing. And I only visited like one teacher. Um, it was the psychology teacher. His name is Mr. Haber. Mr. Haber was my dude. Um, I was, you know dressed as a lady i'd straightened my hair because if i straightened my curly hair it was longer so i had had the whole system figured out i poked my head in like his room during like lunch when there was no one in there and he just like squints at me from across the room and just is quiet for a while and then he goes holy shit and he like gets up and runs and gives me a hug Mm. and it was like so nice and then we just hung out and talked and he's like how you doing i'm like i'm great actually he's like good you seem great and it's that thing where you start to like, I don't know, maybe it's the equivalent of like when a child like grows up and shares a beer with their dad for the first time. Cause it's like, now I'm talking to you like an adult. It, it felt sort of like that, but much nicer. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, I, I love that. I love that. I have since reconnected with Mrs. Kenny, who was our class advisor. I was a, the secretary all four years of my high school class government. And, and so Mrs. Kenny and I are now friends on Facebook. And it's, it's been a really interesting journey because if anybody's connected to me on the Facebook, um, I'm very, very, uh, I, I hate using a super technical academic word here, but um, I'm very, very gay. Very, very, <laughs> very, very gay. Um, and so, and Mrs. Kenny is very, very Catholic. Uh, and so it has been really an interesting journey and I had to reconnect with her and, and, and I had no awareness of her faith uh, in high school. And, and she's been super supportive uh, and, and also posts Trump memes, right? <laughs> and so 
this is a tricky dance, uh, but mm. but super thankful for her and and super thankful for for Mrs. DeCaro, uh, who I just found on LinkedIn and will be reaching out to uh, as soon as we're done here. So oh, yeah, that's so I, I, the, those were places of safety, and 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 throughout the movie, you know, Dinky's place of safety is is with stray animals and so for to have this safety and this point of connection to the point where you know dinky thinks she's she's leaving at the end of the movie because she thinks roxy carmichael is her mother and and so roxy when she visits the town which spoiler alert roxy doesn't show up and also spoiler alert uh yeah definitely not her mom uh dinky thinks she's leaving and she wills her arc and all the animals her safe place to the guidance counselor and so yeah. it's just this this real transference of safety thank you for providing this for me uh you are the first human with whom i feel safe and here you go you need to feed these animals every day yeah i think that it really is just so touching and it does remind me of honestly it, it reminds me a lot of the scene in eighth grade when kayla is choosing what's going to go in her time capsule like her new time capsule um because that's sort of what Dinky has here. It's like she doesn't really have material possessions. She does have her very cool goth bedroom um, that I cannot believe mom let her paint the walls <laughs> like that olive black color. Oh, yeah. um, it looks like a like chalkboard paint. Yeah, it's really interesting <laughs> to look at. Um, but this very much is like, well, this is what's important to me. Like these are the things that I value. This is this is where my heart lies. And to see that that's what she's prioritized more than anything, I think is just really beautiful and very much a, a reflection of her character. Um, but you, you are right. At the end of the movie, Roxy does not show up. They still have the party, but it is so fascinating because you see, um, you know, you, you have poor Shirley MacLaine's daughter pining, like looking longingly at Evelyn, who clearly <laughs> does not, all she cares about is Roxy. Mm -hmm. You have Denton, who realizes that his entire world has completely blown up right. um, because Roxy is not coming back and Barbie has left with the kids and now he just has himself and he has to figure out pretty much for the first time in his life how to exist without it being in response to Roxy Carmichael mm -hmm. and Dinky has to accept that that's not her biological mom um, and there is no sadder visual in this movie to me than when she drops the suitcase and outpours all of the candy that she purchased because she knows it's Roxy's favorite mm -hmm. Um I don't know why specifically that is the scene that just crushes my soul, <laughs> but that's the one. <laughs> and yeah. uh, it, it's, it's got the feeling of like when you drop a folder in like the hallway during school and your papers go everywhere. So you just have that moment where you just look at it and go, Oh God, like, do I, do I clean all this up in front of everyone or do I just ignore it and keep moving on and just accept that, that I'm not getting that back? Like, it's this crushing feeling. Yeah. And also that she has literally nothing to bring with her to her new life from California. There is yeah. nothing but her own wits and her own self-confidence. And, and she doesn't need to bring anything else because this community has given her nothing. And so, nothing. you know what? I'm just going to bring something that I know that my biological mother likes alongside me because that's, that's all I have to offer. I, you know, obviously the most important scene in the entire movie, though, happens over the punch bowl uh, when Libby, uh, the Roxy Carmichael's uh, former best friend's lover in the movie, 
um, makes eyes with another woman. And so mm -hmm. you know that Libby, it is a maybe nanosecond scene that is inserted in there. And it's like, you know what? Good. Good, Shirley maybe. McLean's daughter. You found someone. <laughs> maybe she'll be okay. <laughs> but I, here, here's, here's a question I have for you all. And maybe this, maybe this is just something that I was picking up on and I'm just kind of making up as I go along. But obviously, Roxy fled town like under the cover of night, leaving uh, a new baby and her mar got married to boyfriend when they were 10 years old and just left the whole town behind. How much of this do you think, uh, like, in towards this climax when Dinky is not at school and she's disappeared and suddenly people are going, wait, where is she? Where her adopted parents have to step up, specifically dad. And he goes, well, that's my daughter. I have to go find her. Where you have Jeff Daniels' character, uh, Denton, who's been kind of being a good father, possibly, for the first time towards Dinky because of the association with Roxy and it gives him like maybe a view into the fantasy that he wished he had where like, Oh, this would be the age of my daughter, whether he's picking up on that or not. How much of this panic during this period where they don't know where she is, is like reflexive sort of PTSD where she is different. She is offbeat. And now she might be fleeing town too. And you kind of realize like, Oh God, she is such a parallel for Roxy, which is we see the whole, we see the whole movie, but they don't. Yeah. Yeah, right, because that's the climax of the movie is that nothing changes for anyone, mm -hmm. right? Like nothing has, nothing has changed. Dinky is still there. Uh, she, she will go back to her adopted parents. Denton uh, will never see Roxy again, not that she has thought about him in however many years. And so mm -hmm. I, I love the read that, that, that Dinky, you know, could bolt in at any moment because obviously the, in the sequel, Dinky gets into Sarah Lawrence, um, and that's where she goes to school. Uh, I have a whole narrative about what happens to Dinky afterwards, but yeah, she's she's not coming back for breaks. Um, she is she's not coming back for any college break, and 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 I do see that read, and that that resonates with me strongly. Of just Dinky's gonna go. This this mm -hmm. this community hasn't given her anything but the fortitude to stand on her on her own two feet. Mm -hmm. Agreed completely, and I think that. There is a lot of Roxy Carmichael in Dinky, despite the fact that they are not uh, actually related to one another. Because when Roxy doesn't come back, I mean, first off, the dramatics of sending a limo oh. for for nothing is really funny to me. Wow. Like that is that is like borderline camp villainy, and I'm obsessed with it. Um, but I completely understand why Roxy Carmichael would not want to come home. Because obviously she didn't like being there in the first place. Otherwise, she wouldn't have left. But it's not as if she doesn't know that all of those people are still there and are still waiting for her and still have kind of deified her in a way. I, I'm sure she's aware of it. There's no way she doesn't know her childhood home is not a, a museum at this mm -hmm. point. And that's a lot of pressure to deal with. And obviously, this is a much smaller scale. But when I go home... Like, the sports bar in my neighborhood that my parents and I used to frequent, like, they will put up on the side of the board, Welcome Home, Brittany Jade Co. Like, they will put that there. Um, I recently had to go back to my hometown for a not very fun reason at all in the slightest. I was helping with funeral preparations for someone very, very near and dear to me. Um, and I had to tell people ahead of time, like a handful of people, hey, this is not a homecoming. Like, I am 
coming back for a specific, very sad reason, I'm not going to go to the sports bar. I'm not going to go have like a big dinner so everyone can come see me. None of this is happening. And if you tell people I'm in town, it's going to be a problem. Like I had to covertly get people to pick me up from the airport that I knew were not going to tell anybody like, hey, BJ's back in town. Because when I come home, it's like the circus is in town. And obviously they're not throwing giant BJ balls. Yes, I know what that sounds like with my brain. Um, (laughs) I heard it the second it left my mouth. Like obviously that kind of thing isn't happening But it is a huge deal when I come back home and especially like when I was sick and then wasn't sick anymore and came back home. It was a just a a flood of people of, oh, my gosh, I'm so happy. I've been praying for you. I've been thinking about you. I care about you so much. You mean so much to me. Blah, 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 blah. How's life? How's this? You seem to be thriving. I'm so proud of you. And like that is so overwhelming because, you know, you're being put on a pedestal that you can never meet. Like Mm -hmm. you can never actually meet the standards that people have set for you and that's what's happening with roxy i would not come home either and after what i did this this past year having to go home for funeral stuff i'm done i don't need to go back there i did my nostalgia trip i waved goodbye to my high school i waved goodbye to my childhood home where my parents don't live anymore because they've retired Mm. um i'm good i don't i don't need to i'll go back to chicago the city proper but you're not going to catch me in Lake County ever again. It's yeah. not happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, again, sitting here right this second, I stopped as soon as I came out, I stopped coming back to Montvale, New Jersey. And I think that's a big difference between Dinky and myself. I, I think Dinky was unbelievably authentic. Um, I was not, right? I was mm-hmm. was in no way embracing any type of authenticity. I truly was not out to anyone. Uh, anyone, anyone, trusted friends, of which there was one, uh, high school guidance counselors, nobody. And so as soon as I came out in New York City and, and, and was living my authenticity, I literally stopped coming back here. I, it, I became an RA, right? And, and being an RA meant I was there for all the breaks and, and never really came home again except for very sporadic appearances. And my parents have now since sold our childhood home. I'm actually, my parents sold our childhood home during the pandemic. So what I'm headed to go do actually in just a few is I'm going to go, I never got to say goodbye to that house that they were in for 44 years. So I'm going to go do my little cathartic selfie. um, And and this really is that moment for me. This is my my Roxy Carmichael moment, uh, except I'm actually here Uh, tonight. I will be uh, throwing the BJ ball. Um, oh, and I just realized how that sounded. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's it's oh, it's so amazing to to talk about this movie in this moment is just I'm so appreciative. <laughs> well, I think that that is a lovely moment for us to wrap up on Welcome Home, Roxy Carmichael. So Harmony, the question stands. Welcome home, Roxy Carmichael is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe, or are you buying her a ticket so she can go on her own? See, this is one of those movies that we get every once in a while where I watch it and I enjoy it and go, yeah, no, this is good. But I feel way better about this movie having sat down and discussed it for the podcast because it's way deeper and way more interesting and way more resonant than just like the text itself. It's almost like... The Roxy Carmichael character is the entire energy of this movie in which 
so much of the powerful things isn't actually what happens with her. It's what people think happens. It's it's the it girl and the magnitude that exists with her legend. So much of the things that are great about this movie aren't the things that are deliberately happening in the movie. It's the specific scenarios that surround it. It's the subtext. Like, those are what make this movie go from, like, good to really great. And so, yeah, no, it's just, yes, there we go. It's great. Love it. Beautiful. Ken, if you would like people to follow your work on the internet, where can they find you? Oh my gosh, golly. Well, everybody should stroll on over and go follow the Buckeye Flame. We are Ohio's only LGBTQ news and views platform. So that's over at thebuckeyeflame.com. And if you want to check out all the dog and pony stuff that I am doing, you can go on over to kenschneck.com. Beautiful. And as always, friends, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at This Ends at Prom. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BJ Colangelo. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. And as always, shout out to Ohio locals, the Sonderbombs, for allowing us to use their song title as our theme song. Harmony, what cool band do you want people to check out this week, inspired by Welcome Home Roxy Carmichael? Oh, straight from the nowhere cornfields of like 30 minutes outside Clyde, Ohio, we're, uh, we're talking about some family. We're talking about the band Resignation, which is the band of uh, Mr. Wes Allen, our, our brother from another mother and former guest on the podcast. And it's a fucking great release from them called Demo 2022, where these now like middle aged punk rockers who came up in like post hardcore or, you know, elder emo, as it were, just decided we're going to get a band together and we're going to release some music and... The way I described it on Twitter is that it's music for driving around in a small car with more friends in it than there are seatbelts. And that is such wholly an Ohio feeling, I think. <laughs> uh, I'm sure it exists other places, but like that, that feels like Ohio to me. And it, it's, it's got the vibes that you could cry and scream to it, but also listen to their songs. Effie is fine. Allie's got a knife. And you never told me, so I guessed. They, they work while crying and screaming, but also you could play like Tony Hawk Pro Skater to them. I just big, big fan and very excited for future releases from them. Absolutely. Resignation is incredible. And like we said, this is family. They've been on the show before. And you can check out the episode on Last American Virgin with Wes Allen. And you can also listen to our episode on Moxie with Wes's daughter, our niece, Roxy. Oh, uh, Roxy. It's just poetic. Everything about it is poetic, and that's why they're the perfect band. All right, friends, that takes us out. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time. And as always, save that last dance for us. Goodbye. Bye.
You want to know what she calls a penis? Guess. I don't know. Well, come on, guess. A hoo-hoo. You wouldn't believe what she calls a vagina. Do you generally give out this kind of information about your mother? She's not my mother. Oh, right. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.